we ought to be excited about our text this morning. Let's go to Matthew, Mark, rather. Mark chapter 11 and verses uh, 12 through 25 is where we're going to be. Folks, it's been so exciting last week, if you remember, for two months. Two months, we, we've been following Jesus as he's leaving his area of Galilee and ministry. And, and he's, he came to Jerusalem. And if you remember, there, there was these 400-year-old prophecies. Man, they're just, I mean, they're popping out everywhere. And he, he's coming, and all the prophecies and what he's doing with the, with the cult and, and, and how all the people are reacting, and, and the Hallel, the Hallel, who could forget that from the, from the Psalms? Hosanna, that means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people are, are shouting and they're praising God, which, by the way, is sung during the time of Passover, which is during this particular time. It is the biggest week of the year. It is the week of unleavened bread. It is the week of the Passover. And so here is the king. He comes in this charged-up environment. I mentioned in class, there's 50,000 people who lived in Jerusalem at that time. And at the time of these festivals, there's 150,000 people who come from other places into this place. It was absolutely charged. And so here comes Jesus. He is the king. And he comes in a kingly way. And he comes into the temple. And then what happens? It's like anticlimactic. And we were left last week scratching our heads because Jesus walks in, he looks around, and he leaves. But this is day two we're dealing with this morning. And we're going to see that Jesus takes off of these kingly symbolisms, as we saw last week, and he puts on the symbolism of a prophet of God. And understanding that is going to help us in really getting all of this um, today. Some of you may remember, I don't remember when this happened, I was not alive, uh, but King Tut tomb. Remember, anybody remember when King Tut's tomb uh, was found? It's one of the, the, major, the major things that ever has been discovered. It's this Egyptian boy king, uh, this particular guy here, Howard Carter, along with his sponsor, Lord Carnivon. They, they discovered this King Tut's tomb. And it wasn't long after that there were these rumors that started. And the rumor is that there was on, on the, the burial tomb, there was these words, death shall come on swift wings to him who disrupts the peace of the king. Six months later, Lord Carnivon suddenly dies. It was said that at the moment of his death, all the lights went off in Cairo, and that his dog, back in England, died. In 1929, just a few years after that, there was 11 people closely associated with unearthing the tomb of King Tut. And they died of unnatural causes. And hence, the curse of King Tut began. Or at least the rumor of King Tut began. There's probably a lot of things in there that's a little... Today, in our text in the book of Mark, there's a curse. And the curse is going to, be, going to be issued by someone we would never expect to issue a curse. And he's going to do it on something we would never expect that he would put a curse on. But he does. And that really brings us to the first part of our reading this morning. So let's look at Mark chapter 11 and verse 12. He says, on the following day, 
when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. He's talking about Jesus. And seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, watch this, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Folks, this story right here has confused people for centuries. And it's like, who is this Jesus? Why is he so angry at this, this helpless fig tree? And by the way, this is the last miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And his last supernatural act is, is going to be of death rather than life. That doesn't make sense. And then maybe the thing that, that boggles the mind more than anything else is Mark tells us that he curses a tree that is out of season for not producing fruit. And in class we talked about this, just to give you a, a short rendering of it. There are these things called pagums that are grown during this particular time. They're edible, but the fact that there is no pagums these unripe figs, that means there will be no fruit as well. But that's not the point. We come to this and we feel sorry for the tree, right? Because that's, that's the way our culture is. I mean, I remember having an elder one time and he was a mayor for years and he was in politics and other things. And he said, one thing you never do is you never cut down a tree, <laughs> you know? And here Jesus, he just curses a tree. But that's the culture we live in. Their culture, that they were raised on Old Testament prophecy. This was significant. Jeremiah spoke of a time when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig trees. Even the leaves are withered. Jeremiah is pronouncing judgment upon the people because... God says they have not produced fruit. And what he says is, I am going to plow them up and I am going to plant another vineyard or a field or a tree that will produce fruit. In other words, it is a prophecy of judgment. Jesus comes on this day as a prophet. And he begins outside of Jerusalem showing his disciples something. And he puts it into this chiastic fashion to let us know that we're to pay attention to it. This is the genius of these writers. And we see he begins with a fig tree. He then goes and judges the temple. It comes back to the fig tree. We're to realize that all these things are combined together. And when we read these things individually, we miss it. We totally miss it. So what's happening here is both of these, the fig tree and the temple, represent something that if you look at it, it looks as if something that's supposed to produce fruit. It should have fruit on it. The fig tree had leaves on it. The temple is the temple of God. We, we should expect fruit. But what we see, Jesus, when he came the week before, or the day before, when we were scratching our heads, he finally comes to the temple, and he goes in, and he looks around, and he leaves. He was inspecting it. And now we're going to see what all of this is about. So let's get into the heart, and let's start reading verse 15. 
And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, those, sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared because all the crowds was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus is ticked off. He is angry. And we look at this and we're like, this is not the same Jesus that we have seen through the Gospels. And we're supposed to take notice of what's happening. Remember, he takes on the form of a prophet. Any of you ever heard of the artist Banksy before? A uh, few of you have. Banksy is a really interesting artist. He comes out of England. He does his work all over the world, but he does it in secret. Because what he does is all about... Um, giving a message, a shocking, shocking message. And he comes to these places, he's a political activist, he's a trespasser, he vandalizes public bridges and walls and, and things of that sort in order to get this shocking message that's out there. And you may, you may say, well, I don't know if I've ever heard of him, but you may have seen this particular picture here. Uh, this is a picture, uh, this is probably one of his most famous. And what's interesting about this picture is that it was, it was drawn two miles from where Jesus rode into Jerusalem. That's interesting, isn't it? So we look at this picture, and we see this Palestinian. He's angry. He's, he's painted in black and white. But then in his hands are flowers. It's, he's, this picture is known as the flower bomber. Uh, and so instead of throwing, you know, these bombs or whatever it is, he's throwing flowers that you see, the only part that is filled with color and the point is that it represents hope that instead of throwing bombs they begin to throw things of peace things of beauty you see that you see the irony he he, he draws in and in, in these great big ironic scenes and they have this dark humor to them and and so here we see that you know here's a guy who is Usually this, his portraits are anti-war, they're anti-capitalism, they're anti-establishment. And if you go and look up his artwork, you can see so many more of those. And you can look up, and you can spend the whole day just looking up Banksy's stuff. Because they're, they're shocking. They're outrageous. They, they slap you in the face. That's the intent of because the intent is to make you think. It's trying to put something out there before you that you're not getting. That's, folks, that's the way the prophets did. They just didn't use wall graffiti. In fact, they used some that are a little bit more difficult. And they're symbolic, and their prophecies were charged with emotion. If you look up Banksy, and you, you start looking at some of his other art, and you realize what he's saying, and some of, the, some of you are going to get angry. I'll just tell you, you're going to get angry. Because it, some of it is because you don't agree 
with his stance, whatever that political or anti-government or whatever it may be that's out there. And some of you, you're not going to like it because he's going to slap you in the face. But that's the point. And the point is that hopefully you will see this message that's there and maybe get you to think. The prophets did the same thing. And they were governed by God. Did you know Isaiah? He had to walk around naked for three years. Yeah, all of a sudden Banksy sounds pretty calm, doesn't it? Walked around naked for three years as a prisoner of war. And it was to be a sign to those who were of Egypt and Cush, which is we call Ethiopia today, that they too are going to be bound and they are going to be treated as prisoners. Ezekiel, another really interesting prophet, God told him to shave his head. Okay, I'm halfway there. And then to shave his beard. And he was to take it and to throw that hair up into the wind. And then he's to take a sword and he's just like, he's, he's just like chopping it. And it's like, it's kind of crazy, right? And he's going everywhere and this is what he's supposed to do. And it is to represent to Israel that they are going to be chopped down by Babylon. It is shocking. It is in your face. And it has a very important message. And that's what the prophets did. It is prophetic street um, theater, really, I think, in what you find here um, as well. So what Jesus does here, it's like a prophet. It's public. It's shocking. You can't get any more shocking than someone going to the temple at this particular time, during this high festival time, and messing up the place. And, and making these pronouncements that he's going to make. In fact, let's get into that because now we're going to see really where Jesus is going to come from. And the first thing of Jesus' statements, the first question that he asks there is, he says, my house, he says, is it not written that my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations? Now, that's not just something he came up with. This is something that comes out of the prophets. It comes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 56. Anytime we find these hyperlinks, it's not simply so we can say we're speaking where the Bible speaks. Those are to set up the scene. We are supposed to get into the moment to understand where this language is coming from and what Jesus is trying to show. And so what we find with these prophecies is, and, and Isaiah, this is the way it was. In Isaiah, the first part is about judgment. It's the judgment of Israel for their rebellion. The second part is hope. There's a future hope. There is a king from the line of David who's going to come. There's going to be a new Jerusalem and, and a kingdom and all of this kind of stuff. So we find judgment and we find hope. And those two things are very important as we move through this as well. So Jesus comes to the temple and he is pronouncing judgment on it. And he's pronouncing judgment on its leaders. But it's filled with hope for the future. See if this sounds familiar. So Isaiah, when he gets to this point of hope, it's leading up to where Jesus quotes. In chapters uh, 40 through 55, it speaks of this one who's coming, the servant king of God, and he is going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, and then suddenly he's alive again. Anything familiar about the Gospel of Mark? 
any, anything about Jesus' predictions all the way down to Jerusalem, that he will be rejected, he will die, and he will raise three days. Sure it is. The last remaining chapters, which begins in Isaiah 56, where Jesus quotes, he speaks of a new Jerusalem and a coming kingdom where all the nations of the earth will be included. We will be invited in to join God's covenant family. And it is an extension of God's salvation. Folks, get that. And the reason this is important is because the opposite is what was happening at the time of Christ. At the time, there is Herod's temple. Okay, when we think of the temple, we think of a building, right? We think of this one single building. But when you talk about Herod's temple, this has been renovated since the time of Zerubbabel. Uh, Zerubbabel, and, and it started this big renovation in like 20 B.C. And we see that the temple included this entire complex. And in this complex, we have this, the Gentiles' courtyard. See, it's huge. It's 32 acres. That's, that's pretty big. By the way, here's a size comparison. Here's a football field, and here's the so forth. So those who came right inside of this gate, that is known as the court of women. That would have been Jewish women who were allowed in this particular section. And then right beyond it, there was the court of Israel, which only circumcised Jewish men could go into that area. And then there was the court of the priests and the temple itself. And you may look at this and say, man, that's great. Gentiles already had a place to worship. That's not how they saw it. They saw it as a boundary. Did you know there was a warning sign? There were warning signs to the Gentiles. And it was written in Aramaic and Greek and Latin. And it said, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. And it's like, well, what, how did they miss this prophecy from Isaiah? It's what happened in the intertestament period that we talk about often in, in Bible class. Because it's important to understand what's happening here. But they expected a Messiah who would come, who was going to cleanse the temple of Gentiles and foreigners. Non-Jews, that's what a Gentile is, and anyone who is a sinner. The temple was intended to be a symbol of light. It was supposed to be a witness to the nations of the world. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem the day before, and he inspects this whole situation. And he sees that they've got boundaries everywhere. What has Jesus been doing? And, and by the way, been doing that rather than seeing it as a place where God is going to gather the outcasts of Israel. What, is, what has Jesus been doing in all this time before? He's been gathering the outcasts, the lepers, the blind, the paralytic, people who, who were not allowed into the temple area because they were unclean. Jesus has been gathering these people, even Gentiles. It wasn't even the Gentiles' time, not yet. And yet Jesus has been encountering them and reaching out to them. You know why? Because he's the Messiah. He can't help himself. He cannot help himself. When he comes across people who are lost, he just cannot help himself. And that's what it was supposed to be. 
But Jesus comes to the temple and he expects the temple to embody that same inclusive love that he has demonstrated and he finds that it's got all of these borders. And Jesus has come to say as a prophet, the borders will be taken down. And non-Jews are going to be included and go to a place that they never ever could have imagined. And, and Jewish women even, they will no longer be considered second, second court citizens. And, and as the Jews and Gentiles are brought together in Jesus Christ, we see that we now, as the congregation of God, that we also are to exhibit that same thing, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or free. second part of Jesus' teaching comes from Jeremiah. And here, Jesus refers to these leaders, and this is very important who he's talking to, and he calls it a house. They've turned it into a den of robbers. A den of robbers. So, the leaders oppress, in Jeremiah, they oppress foreigners, they oppress widows, they oppress children, um, they would go off outside the city and they would offer up these sacrifices to Baal. They would set their children into the fires. And then they would come back to the temple of Yahweh and they would offer up sacrifices to him. And they felt like as long as they did that, they were fine. And what's interesting here is that Jesus came to declare judgment on the temple. And the reason is they had turned the temple into a den of robbers. Now what's a den? And this is one of those things I've talked about in class. I've always thought that the problem was what the vendors were doing and overcharging. And that was happening. Don't get me wrong. There was extortion. And no doubt Jesus is not happy about that. But, but what he does, in, and as he comes here, um, he sees this as their den. And, and robbers go to their den. They go to their hideout because they feel like it's a safe place. They go out and they, they do whatever it is they want to do. In fact, we'll see in chapter 12 um, that they are devouring widows' houses, but then they come back, and as long as they're giving the prescribed sacrifices at the prescribed times, then everything is okay. But they were wrong. Because Jesus comes as the prophet of Israel, and he says, the walls are going to come down. Micah also prophesied about the coming destruction of Babylon, of Jerusalem and, and the temple. And, and notice what it says. Here we see the house, heads of the house. They were crooked, uh, these leaders, even the priests and the prophets. And, and, and notice here that I underline, and they would say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They thought as long as we are doing these other rituals and we're doing and we're, we're keeping up the house of the Lord and making sure it's shiny and all of this kind of thing, then we're fine. In chapter 7, he says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. Now watch this. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. But, but listen, what did I say? With these prophecies, there's judgment, and then there is hope. 
And the hope is found in chapter 4. He says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, listen to that, it shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted above the hills and the peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. Now watch this. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his, what? Fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. You see what's happening here. You see what the fig tree is symbolizing. It's prophetic. But we're not finished. He goes back to the fig tree. So let's start reading verse 20. He says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So they come back. They're going back to the temple the next day. It says day three. They come back and they see the fig tree. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. Folks, Jesus doesn't hate trees. He's just completing this chiastic form. When no fruit is found, destruction is coming. In other words, the temple, after years of corruption by its leaders, Jesus sees this and he says, it is to a point of no return. That's the way it was seen with Assyria. That's the way it was seen with Babylon, especially with the temple. And that is the way it is being seen here as well. And the point that we better get is that time is running out on fruitless trees, and prayerless temples. Jesus has not come to purify the temple. Jesus has come to bring it to its end. And he reveals this new order. And this order that he reveals is one of faith, it's one of prayer, and it's one of forgiving of others. And we're meant to sit there and ask ourselves, are we the fig tree or the temple? And it begins with me because he's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to Peyton. And he's talking to Joe and to Liddell and to Mike, who's not here, but these are our elders. These are the first ones. And we've got to ask ourselves, do we give the impression of, of, of a tree that has leaves on it or the temple of God that, that we are people who, are, who have fruit or that we can come to and have fruit, but upon further in investigation upon ourselves or inspection, we realize we don't. And this is for all of us, too. Are, are we to a point that, you know, as long as I come to this structure to come and worship God, as long as, you know, I'm, I'm doing the rituals that God tells me to do, 
then I'm okay. Look again at verses 22 and 23. Jesus wants his disciples to have faith in God that can move this mountain. Now, one thing that's important here is that it's a specific mountain. Do you see that? He says, this mountain. And, and this is not some random lesson about prayer and how to do miracles. This, that's not what this is. It's coming off of everything he's saying. And he's asking his disciples to believe, to have this kind of faith, that it's just going to come true. And to have faith in something that is so outrageous, that is so shocking, that the temple of God will come down. It will be cast into the sea. Because something greater is coming. Only this time the temple is not going to be destroyed by Babylon. It will be destroyed by Rome. And it will happen within 40 years. The destruction of the temple was God's justice on the religious leaders for rejecting the Son of God's offer of the kingdom of God. But with messages of judgment, there's messages of hope. And you may say, well, you know what? I've read this. I'm not seeing a lot of hope here. <laughs> and there is. You know how we know it? Because it, it, it says what, how they responded. The people responded. Uh, the, the, the scribes and, and the leaders, they started to plot to kill Jesus. You may say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the hope? <laughs> it is. It is. That's, that's what, remember, that's what the disciples are missing this whole time. It is illuminating the cross of Jesus that's coming. That is the hope. Because he becomes the atonement for our sins. And when he goes to the grave, he dies for all humankind. It says that he will rise up and he will bring a new temple in three days. And what has taken them decades in trying to build this, this temple of Herod, Jesus is going to take three days in the grave and he's going to return with something that's even greater and even more importantly it is eternal and this temple is going to reach the borders of israel it will reach the borders beyond roman empire as mighty as great as it was because this is a temple that is without borders our congregation that's here we're made up of non-jews Maybe you've got a little bit. I've got less than 1% European Jew in me. I don't know if that counts. That's what, that's what I paid and they told me I had. But we embody the temple of God. We embody the temple by faith, by prayer, and by forgiveness. We embody the temple when we no longer have barriers based upon someone's status or their race or their gender. We are the temple of God by the very Spirit of God that has come and dwells in us. Do you get that? The tables of the money changers have been changed and now we have the Lord's table. And it is a table without walls. 
This is a very different Jesus we read here than the one that we've come to understand. And, and some of us, we may not like this Jesus. We like the Jesus who's meek and mild and says we need to love everyone. But we've got to accept this Jesus who comes and he brings justice where there's evil and there's corruption. Jesus is ticked off. And a lot of times when we hear anger, we think of that as the emotion. But anger is actually, it, it comes from something else, generally. And it can be good or it can be bad. For example, with your children. You know, if one of your children hurts the other one, I mean, they haul off and whack them. I know your kids didn't do that, but mine did. Um, but, you know, your first reaction is you're angry. And you, and you, you jump on that child. And it's not because you hate that child, it's because you love your children. It's a, it's a response. We don't want to see any of our children that are being abused. And our children may see it as if, wow, they're really angry, rather than, man, they really love us. <laughs> but that's how we do Jesus. We see Jesus as he just really is angry at us, and really it's Jesus just loves us. He doesn't hate the fig tree. He does not hate he doesn't hate the religious leaders. He loves all humanity. But because he does, he confronts them on these things. And, and God, more than anything else, he wants to be reconciled back to his rebellious, fallen creation. In Matthew, it says, Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he just weeps. He just weeps. And yet here's Jesus telling them, listen, this is coming. There's going to be a destruction. And he's going to talk more about it a little bit later on. This is where I want to come to as we get ready to partake of the bread and the cup. And if you're serving, go ahead and go on out. There are moments that the the passionate side of Jesus is very confrontational to us. And this usually happens when, when God sees hypocrisy in us, when he sees us who are supposed to be his representatives, and, and yet we go out and we feel like as, as long as I come to a structure every week and, and I offer up these rituals and these prayers, and we're getting ready to partake of a very important ritual. But as long as I do these things, then, you know, and, but what Jesus comes to us and he, he's meeting us in this time and he's saying, you're not fine if that's how you see this whole thing. That is not what this is about. Out of love, Jesus confronts us. And it's this Jesus that I want us to meet with us this morning as we get ready to partake of the bread and the cup. And we may not want to, but if we're honest, we know that we have compromised our convictions. And some of you, you say, you know what, I've done that all week. If you're honest, we can say, you know what, I have not lived as God would have me to live. I have not treated people the way they should be treated, the way God would want them to be treated this week. And it may not be the whole week, but there are moments, and you know what I'm talking about. And maybe it's a habit that you've developed in your life that just is not of Christ. And Jesus comes at this moment, and he comes and he confronts you. And we need Jesus to confront us. We need to let him confront us this morning. 
You may say, well, I don't know if I want that, Jesus. Listen, we're taking the element that represents the very love of God for us. It is his death. It is his atonement. And he loves us is why he confronts us. And as we partake of these elements and what Jesus has done for us, just let that happen. Let it happen as we now get ready to take this bread that represents the very body of Jesus. Dear Father, we come to you and we ask you to join us at this moment. For your son to come and join us at this moment as we, as we remember the sacrifice that was given for us. But Father, confront us. Father, bring these things to mind. Help us to realize why it was so necessary for your son to die on a cross. Father, take us deep into our hearts this morning. Take us deep as a community of people. Father, we thank that you thankful that you love us. And we invite you to come now. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.